This morning, we're going to start our study of the book of Ruth. Uh, before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for gathering us together this morning to study your word. Thank you for the growth we've seen as we've worked through your word together. Pray that you would be with the kids as they are discipled and trained in godliness. Pray that you'd be with David and Jamie and any other child care workers we have. That you give them patience and grace as they teach the kids and love them. Pray that you would be with us as we study the Bible this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft and tender and humble. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the book of Ruth. How many of you looked Ruth up in the Bible before you came so you'd know where to turn? Yep, yeah, me too. I knew. Uh, so the way it works, we got the first five books of the Bible, right? Those are called the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, and that tells the story of everything from creation, when God created the earth, all the way through the people of Israel leaving slavery in Egypt. And then, after that, what happens next? That's Joshua. The people go and make their conquest of the promised land. And then judges, they settle the promised land, and it's an interesting time. It's the time that if you wanted to like write a graphic novel or something like that, that's the part of the Bible you'd pick because all kinds of crazy things happen. It's a different sort of book. Um, it's pretty fun and pretty crazy. And we're going to talk about it more here in a minute. And then you would come to Ruth. And that would be, uh, these are all basically called the historical books of the Bible. Um, Ruth is a different book than the type of thing that we've studied so far together as a church in our short life together. The first thing we studied has been what? It was the Sermon on the Mount. What's the Sermon on the Mount? In terms of genre. It's in the name. It's a sermon, right? It's a sermon by Jesus about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What it looks like. How we're to live as citizens of God's kingdom. How we're to understand ourselves as sons of our Father in heaven. Okay, this is the very first thing we studied. Then we turned to Proverbs. Very different than the Sermon on the Mount, right? Proverbs, a collection of aphorisms and sayings about wisdom. And we spent most of our time studying the first nine chapters, which are largely exhortations, right? Exhortations to pursue the life of wisdom. Little mini sermons. So it's kind of similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but also really focused on wisdom, right? Two ways to live. The way of the wise and the godly, the way of the fool and the wicked. And then we moved to Philippians, which was another change. Something very different, right? And what we say about Philippians, what is it? It's a letter. It's a letter. It's a thank you note. But it's more than that, right? But it's a letter from a pastor to his people. So we were reading other people's mail. It's a letter from a pastor, a faithful pastor to his church that he planted 10 years prior. A thank you note for their show of concern in hard times with encouragements for how to live a life of joy and peace and contentment in the midst of suffering. Ruth is different. Ruth is a narrative. It's artfully told, almost like a short story or a novella, but it's true. It's historical. As a historical narrative in Scripture, it serves multiple purposes. It works to teach us in multiple ways. 
There are three ways I want to talk about before we even get into it that I want us to understand about how God uses the historical narratives of Scripture to teach us. Okay? The first is the obvious moral lesson. This is like Sunday school when you were a kid. Okay? Noah. Noah stood alone against the wicked men of his time. Noah had the faith to build an ark. It probably looked and felt stupid to be Noah at times. We should have the faith, like Noah, to stand alone in wicked times against wicked men and to look silly because of our faith, right? There's an obvious moral lesson. Noah, by faith, trusted God and was alone and did things that people thought were probably pretty ridiculous. He built a great big boat, in the middle of the desert. We should have that kind of faith. Abraham, he didn't have a son. God had promised him a son, but he didn't have a son. He had promises. He believed God. God gave him a son. And then what did, what did God do? He tested him and he demanded that son, didn't he? He demanded that Abraham sacrifice that son. Abraham had to believe even harder. And he did. And God honored that faith. We should be like Abraham. We, there should be nothing on this earth that we shouldn't be willing to walk away from, that we love more than God. We should have that kind of faith. And praise God, we're not put to the test like Abraham was. How many of us would pass? We should be like Abraham. Moses stood up to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, with nothing and no one to back him up except for God. And God delivered Moses and all of Israel and destroyed his enemies. We should be willing, like Moses, to trust God and stand up to God's enemies, even when it looks and feels impossible. David did the same thing with Goliath. Five smooth stones in the name of the living God. We should be like David. Daniel did the same thing in the lion's den. We should be like Daniel. These are all examples worth imitating, right? Simple moral lessons that we learn from people of faith are examples to us. Okay? So that's the first way that we come to passages like this, these stories. Second way is what these, we learn what these stories have to teach us about God's providence, which is just to say the way that God normally works in the world and in our lives and in the lives of other people. In nations as a whole, in the time of Noah, go back to Noah, the wickedness of the world hit a threshold. So God visited judgment. He's promised not to do anything like that on a global scale again. But we see that pattern play out time and time again. We see it play out on, a, on smaller scales, on a national scale. Outside of the nation of Israel in Scripture, we see all kinds of nations that their wickedness reaches a certain threshold and God says, enough is enough. It's time to visit judgment on that nation. For the people of Israel, the same thing happens. Their rebellion goes so far and God disciplines them, visits judgment upon them. And that leads to a cycle of repentance, God raising up a redeemer or a, a judge or somebody to rescue Israel. But they go through that cycle. It's sort of like that saying that uh, maybe you've seen a meme that's been going around for a couple of years now. Strong men create Peaceful times, peaceful times create 
soft men, soft men create hard times, hard times create hard men, hard men create cycle, right? With Abraham and Isaac, God oftentimes withholds from us our heart's desire only to give it back once we're forced to worship the giver instead of the gift. Another way that God works. Lessons we can learn about how God works in our lives and in the lives of those around us, right? So there's the moral lessons. There's the lessons about God's providence, how God works. We see it play out. And then there's another aspect to these stories. A third one. They're often full of what is called typology. Small pictures or shadows that point to bigger realities. Prophetic realities. Things that are finally realized in the person and work of Jesus himself, the Messiah. There's a passage at the end of Luke, Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, where he's talking to some disciples along the road. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. They're confused about what happened, about Jesus having died. And then some women saying they saw some angels who said he was alive. They're telling Jesus about this, but they're really confused about it. And they don't recognize that it's him. So Jesus rebukes them and he says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then the passage continues. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later in the same chapter, Luke records this. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, do you follow all that? Jesus says that all through scripture, from Genesis, the books of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, they say the Messiah is going to come, he's going to suffer and die, he's going to be raised from the dead on the third day. Have you ever heard that and wondered how, where is that? Where exactly? How do I, how am I supposed to see that in the Old Testament scriptures? The third day, like how is that? When we think of prophecy, we tend to think more of like fortune telling, right? Like some idea that should say somewhere, Jesus is going to, the Messiah shall come and he shall die. And on the third day, he'll be raised. And we look for that kind of passage. We don't find it. Where is that? How does that work? The Bible does not uh, uh, treat prophecy the way that you and I think of it. The answer is in types and figures and shadows. The prophets don't all tell the future. A lot of what they do is applying God's law to the situation in front of them. Biblical prophecy is not fortune telling. So let's go back to some of the examples we've already brought up. Like Noah. Noah and his family passed through the waters of God's judgment safe inside of an ark. They emerged from the ark to a new creation to begin a new humanity. The ark itself 
which saved Noah and his family is a picture of Jesus. And Noah himself is a type of Christ, a picture. Abraham had to give up his son, his only son, as a sacrifice. God uses that language over and over again, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. That language is important. It's there for a reason. Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice on his back. On the third day, Abraham set out to sacrifice Isaac. And God said no. God returned his son to him on the third day. And scripture says that he received him as though back from the dead. And there was a ram hiding, uh, stuck in a bush, a thorn bush. Its horns stuck in thorns, like a crown. And they took the ram out of the bush and sacrificed the ram instead, in place of Abraham's son. Moses went up against Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the serpent king of Egypt. Serpent, bring any bells to you? I call him the serpent king because, look, everything about the imagery of Pharaoh, it's not subtle, is it? He has this big headdress. He looks like a cobra. He's made to look like a cobra, like a snake. He has a crown, and at the end of the crown is what? It's a cobra. It's a snake. This is, this is just history. This is how God writes history. It's there, right? God made a promise back in Genesis after Adam and Eve fell. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Moses goes up against Pharaoh. Just like Herod would try to kill Jesus when he was a baby, Pharaoh set out to kill the children of Israel. When he was grown, God through Moses visited judgment on the serpent. A series of plagues, ending with the deaths of all the firstborn sons of Egypt. Everyone who did not have what? The blood of a lamb above their door. Everyone who had the blood of a lamb above their door, judgment passed over them. And all of Israel celebrated the Passover and the Passover and sacrificed the Passover lamb year after year after year after year. What day was Jesus crucified? Passover. Moses led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea. The people of God passed through the waters of judgment in the Red Sea. They closed on Pharaoh and his army. We could go on and on and on. From the beginning to the end, the Bible puts on display for us God's purpose in Christ, in pictures, shadows, types. When David went out to face Goliath, Goliath was wearing armor. In your translation, it says that it was male, right? Like chain link armor. The Hebrew word is serpent armor, because it's like the scales of a serpent. There's a picture. What does David do? He crushes the giant's head, the giant who's clothed in scale serpent armor with the stones. And then he goes and cuts off his head. Have you ever seen or heard a famous clip where a celebrity preacher makes this point and then he tells us we got it all wrong about facing our giants? You're not David. He's going to make a big point that the question isn't if we're going to face our giants, but We have a savior who's already faced down the biggest giant of them all on our behalf. And it's a good point. It's there. But it's also immature to swing and only see that when we come to scripture. These types of things are never either or. 
They're both and. It's both there. Yes, Jesus faced down the serpent and crushed his head. Therefore, we must imitate him and be like him, right? We must be like David. The whole point of David crushing Goliath's head was so that the armies could go and slaughter the Philistines. They didn't just sit back and said, yeah, we have a champion. They said, yeah, we have a champion. Let's go. Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross so that we can not only be free from its guilt and condemnation, but so that we can overcome its power in our daily lives. It's like Song of Solomon. Y'all know that book? Song of Solomon? You know anything about that book? It's the kind of book that makes people blush and go wobbly. And there are all kinds of things people say about that and different traditions of maybe we shouldn't let our kids read this book until they're married. Why? It's erotic poetry. That's why. So because it's erotic poetry, there's a whole lot of people that are squeamish about it and say, well, it's actually not about that. It's an allegory of God in Israel or Jesus in the church. But here's the problem. The Bible Bible tells us that marriage is a shadow, a type of Christ in the church, written into all of creation, which means what? means this is always about that. Always. Where you have marriage, where you have sex, you have pictures of Christ in the church. Where you have Christ in the church, you have teaching about marriage. Because it's always both and. Always. God's united in that way on purpose to show us things about himself. Written into the way he made us. Written into our relationships. This is always about that. Someday maybe we'll study Song of Solomon. But today is not that day. All right, three ways, three things that we see, right? There's the moral lesson that's clear and obvious. There's providence, the way God works in the world and in our lives. There are pictures and shadows and types of Jesus. Today we start Ruth, which is a love story. And it's all of the above. It's got practical, immediate moral application for us. There's tragedy and sorrow. There's love and romance and loyalty and faith. It's beautiful. Boaz is amazing. Ruth is amazing. It's a story of stories. It's over 3,000 years old. A 3,000 plus year old love story. Literally took place in the Bronze Age. It's going to help us become better men and women. It's going to help us become better husbands and wives, better men and women in search of husbands and wives. It also has things for us to learn about God's guiding hand in our lives. How God works through pain and tragedy and suffering to bring about his good purposes for those that suffer, for his people, for the world. In the wake of tragedy, through tremendous Blind but for the eyes of faith, sacrificial covenant love, Ruth and Boaz start a thing together that becomes a bigger thing that leads directly to the birth of Jesus and holds tremendous promise for all of us. We'll talk about that. It has things to say that are prophetic, typological. Boaz is a type of Christ. Ruth is a type of the church. It also has tons of weird things in it because the story takes place 
in the Bronze Age. So all kinds of laws and things that we'll have to open up a little bit. Leverite laws, gleaning laws, strange things. There are also inversions of biblical types that are unexpected. Things that we think one thing's going to happen and something else happens because of all the other patterns and stories that Scripture has taught us. There is a famine story pattern that we see happen. It's inverted. Love stories often revolve around a well. It's inverted. Usually, it's the man who proposes marriage. It's inverted. Ruth proposes marriage to Boaz. Talk about that. And as we go, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see him in a small, insignificant family that big things happen to you. So here we are, Ruth. We've not read the first line yet. Okay? We're going to read it now. It's a big, long introduction. But I wanted us to see those things before we ever got started. So we understand some things about how to approach this type of book of the Bible. Okay? I'm just going to read right now the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, which is where Oprah got her name. It's misspelled. I know you cared. And the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, and both Malin and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay. A line at a time, and all I want to do this, for the rest of our time together this morning is just open up the context. Because there's a whole lot here that if we don't know... We should know, okay? Line one, in the days when the judges ruled. Question, in the days the judges ruled, is that a good time to live or a bad time? If you had to pick times in the history of Israel or the history of the world to live, would you pick the days of the judges? Bad time, right? What? Does it? Does it depend on which judge is alive? I mean, I don't know, man. I kind of like... I think mostly bad. I think Brandon's right, right? Like, it's, it's not a great time to live. What does Scripture say about the times of the judges? Multiple times it tells us it was a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. There's no king. There was no political governing leadership ensuring the rule of law. It was sort of like the Wild West. Moses led God's people out of Egypt. Joshua led them into the promised land. The people settled it. And then there was no king. People rebelled against God. And what would happen is God would judge them by sending the surrounding nations to capture and enslave them or by sending some other disaster like a plague or a famine. Then the people would repent. And then God would raise up a deliverer called a judge who is usually somebody like of epic awesomeness. And he would deliver God's people and it would be crazy. It would be wild. It would be the kind of thing that you would want to read about in a gritty graphic novel. 
people's heads getting lopped off, swords disappearing into the fat of kings and jokes about it, like all kinds of crazy things happening. Swords and donkey jawbones and just like awesome dudes. That was the time of Ruth. Not a nice time to live. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in Moab. First things first. We've seen that language before. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man went to sojourn. Genesis 12.10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham, or Abram went to, down to Egypt to sojourn. Genesis 26.1, now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar. And in Genesis 42, we learn there's a famine in the land, so Jacob's sons and eventually Jacob himself go down to Egypt. Every major biblical patriarch has a famine story where they have to leave God's promised land and go to sojourn somewhere else. There's a famine, they have to go somewhere. When they do, They might make some compromises, but God's hand is with them. They leave empty-handed. They always return to the promised land full, with more than they came. They are in some ways, these famines, God's tools for shifting wealth and balance of power from the godless to the faithful. It's painful for a time, but it ends in glory, and it happens over and over and over and over again. Okay, so there's a signal here. We know that story. We know the story of our fathers. We know the story of the patriarchs. When a story begins, there was a famine in the land, and so a man went to sojourn. We know how that's supposed to play out. It's not going to play out that way. First inversion. A man of Bethlehem in Judah. What's the significance of Bethlehem in Judah? It's where Jesus is born later. What else? We are getting the story, the backstory, the origin story of Bethlehem here. Anybody reading this at any time would have at least known that Bethlehem is the city of David and therefore the city of Christ. At the time the story takes place, it's a nothing town. There are any number of uh, towns called Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. It's ironic. It's all it would have meant tiny, small, provincial place, and now there's a famine in the house of bread. But for anybody reading that story, Bethlehem of Judah, we know, we know. All right, so we have a patriarchal origin story set in the time of Judges. We're going to find out what went down in the city of David before it was the city of David. He went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now we have maybe here our first hiccup. And here's another thing that we need to understand. What do you know about Moab? Anybody know anything about Moab or the Moabites? All right, let's go. What? They're sinful. True. Anybody got anything else? Yeah? Part of like a cast out tribe or somehow related? They are related to the Israelites. They're not a cast out tribe. They are the children of Lot, okay, by incest. So they're all, the Moabites are born of incest. They're the line of of people connected by blood to the people of Israel, but born of incest. What else do you know about them? 
when they, uh, Israel was traveling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, they made an appeal to Moab as kinsmen to relieve their hunger and distress. King of Moab sent a prophet named Balaam to curse them. So God cursed the Moabites. They became the enemies of the people of Israel. The people of Israel were strictly forbidden to have any kind of relationship whatsoever with the people of Moab in any way possible. They worshipped an evil pagan god who had a fertility cult. When Israelites got entangled with Moabites, they left the faith. Things got ugly. Although David later would entrust his parents to the king of Moab. So it's not all perfectly black and white. But nevertheless, most people writing commentaries about this sort of thing think bad move. Moab's a bad place to go. A sinful, faithless move, maybe. They base that assertion on a couple of things. First, they left the promised land after it had been established as the people of Israel's, along with the tabernacle and the ark of God. Second, they went to Moab, one of the enemies of God. And then third is what happens to them while they're there. Okay? Keep reading. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means my God is my king. My God is king. The name of his wife, Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, sickness and destruction. Great names for your kids. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, in case you didn't notice the first time. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay? Then the argument builds that this was a bad, sinful, wrong thing for them to do. They remained there. Okay? It doesn't seem like they just sojourned there. They remained there. Then there's what happens next. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So the argument builds. This is a judgment. God's judgment on them for leaving. The father dies. Naomi and her children then should have gone, but if that's true, they should have gone back to Israel. If it was all Elimelech's doing and Naomi, Naomi here has a chance to right the wrong. But that's not what happened. These sons took Moabite wives. Forbidden. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. That seems like doubling down. We left. We ran. We forsook God and God's people. We went to God's enemies. We remained there. We married our sons to Moabites. We doubled down even after Elimelech died. This is an argument. I'm not saying it's what I agree with, but this is an argument. You need to feel it, okay? Then this happens. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Killian died. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So they leave, they go to Moab, the patriarch dies, the kids take Moabite wives, they live for 10 years, their wives are barren for 10 years. Also a curse. And then they die, all the men. So we have three options. The first is they ran from God and rejected God. They turned their back on him. They turned their back on God's people. They ran to God's enemies. They were judged for it. The second is they faced a hard choice. There was a famine. God's judgment was already on the land. What was he supposed to do? He couldn't let his family starve. He had to make a hard choice. He had to do what he had to do. Sadly, God's judgment followed him. 
the curse that God's people were under found them out even in Moab. They couldn't outrun it. It's not until the judgment on Israel is up and the famine is lifted that God is prepared to have mercy on Elimelech's family too. Second argument. The third is, one way or another, it doesn't matter. This is what God decided was best. We don't always have happy, clean answers for how to draw lines from our sins to God's judgments. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. The passage doesn't make it clear. How we read and interpret this context, this backdrop to the story, does change the story some, doesn't it? Are these hardened rebels that God judges before he brings them to repentance, before he brings Naomi to rock bottom, and from there to repentance? Does God tell that kind of story sometimes? He does, absolutely. He does. Are they people caught up in hard times who suffer and die because of the sins of others and have to find a way to cling to God through it all? That's a story God tells sometimes too, isn't it? Are they people just doing the best they can? Bad things happen sometimes because bad things happen. I don't have a clean answer to what I think about this. Part of me kicks up against the pat explanation of obviously they died because God was judging them. But what I, what I know, what I do know is that there are some aspects of our lives where we have a choice. We have agency. We have a say in the matter. Some of those choices are hard. Some of them can be really hard. Like stay with God's people in God's place. And I might be starving my family. Or go to Moab, God's enemies. Where maybe they have a chance. It's hard, but it's a choice, right? Other aspects of our lives, we don't have a choice. We don't have a say. No one chooses famine. They didn't have a say over that. No one chooses cancer. No one chooses for a loved one to die. Some people choose infertility. Others don't. When hard things happen, it's almost impossible in the moment to see what God is doing. It's almost impossible. You don't know why. It doesn't always make sense. Job did not know what God was doing when God killed his children, when the house collapsed, when they all died. All he could do was say, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had no idea what God was doing. Job had no idea what kind of story God was telling. Abraham did not know what God was doing when God made him wait until he was 100 years old for his son to be born and then turned around and said, now go kill him. No idea. Joseph had no idea what God was doing when his brother sold him into slavery. And then when his master's wife had him thrown into jail. What they knew was pain and grief. That's all they knew. This is a story that begins with immense pain, immense suffering. You have a small, insignificant family in a small, insignificant town that nobody cares about. Nobody knows that this is going to become the city of David. Nobody knows this is going to become the city of Jesus. Nobody cares. Nobody knows who Naomi is. Nobody knows who Elimelech is. A small, insignificant family in a backwater town in a time of just wild craziness. They were never going to be remembered. 
Whether they were turning their backs on God or whether they were just trying to survive, they left everything. They left their property, their rights, their family. They went and lived as strangers in an even more lawless and ruthless land than Israel. And we come to the end of the first five verses of Ruth. And here's Naomi. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. She's been a stranger in a strange land for more than 10 years. She has no grandchildren. She has two daughters-in-law and they're Moabites. Naomi is in pain. She has nowhere to go. Nowhere to turn. She's in so much pain that we see at the end of the first chapter, she chooses a new name for herself. She tells people to stop calling her Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. I'm bitter. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Naomi's in pain and she has nowhere to turn except back. Back to Israel. Back to Israel's God. Pain can do that for us. If we let it. Pain can drive us to God. If we let ourselves feel it. Naomi knows one thing. God is God. God is in control and she has nowhere else to turn. So this story named Ruth is at least at the outset about a woman named Naomi having everything taken from her. Finding herself still in ways she never imagined. Loved and embraced and redeemed by her God. But to get there, to get to that redemption, she had to walk through a lot of pain. There's no resurrection without death. Our Christianity, our faith, our hope is not that we don't die, not that we don't suffer, but that dying we rise. Our suffering serves a purpose beyond ourselves. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to see what God's going to do. Naomi died without knowing what God was going to do. Through this horrible tragedy comes the line that produces King David, that produces Jesus. She had no idea. She knew that her husband was dead and that her sons were dead and that she was alone. So she turned back to God. We don't have to see it all. We don't have to understand it. But we do have to face the pain that God brings into our lives. And we have to cling to God through it. We have to cling to each other. When the time is right, we can remind ourselves that not all sorrow is evil. God has his purposes. His ways are not our ways. Sometimes we just need to feel the pain and let it drive us to God. It's a whole biblical category of thinking for this called lamentation. And we don't do it. We don't let ourselves feel and deal with the pain of our lives and the suffering of our lives before God in a way that's honest and real. And let it drive us to depend on him and turn to him. If we do, God takes our broken, horrible suffering and turns it to good in ways we'd never see or expect. We're going to see that play out in the book of Ruth. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you're good even when it's hard for us to see. We thank you for your love and your care for us. We thank you that you are sovereign over everything that happens in our lives, no matter how hard or painful or difficult. Help us to trust 
in your goodness to us as our Father in heaven. Help us to lean on you when things are hard and to turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.